Uh, special thanks to Christiana and the crew for leading us so well this morning. Just love you guys to death. There's a great line, the idea of uh, day and night let incense arise. It's based off the fact that in the Old Testament, in the temple, uh, they would literally burn incense, all kinds of different things, frankincense, myrrh, uh, saffron, all these different things. They would, they would burn those things, and it was a reminder that, that your praise literally lifted and went into the skies like the smoke did, and that your praises literally have a smell to them. And so the question is, what do, what do our praises smell like to God? And the question we're going to be asking in our new series in James is, what do our lives smell like? Not just our praises, but what do our lives, the day in and day out, the Monday through Saturday kind of stuff, what is that? What does that smell like to the Lord? As if it's incense arising to him. So grateful you're here, especially if it's your first time. If you're visiting, uh, supporting family today in the dedication, thank you for taking some time out of your weekend. Uh, honored that you're a part of this place with us. Uh, let me uh, dive into a word of prayer before we begin our new series. And, um, and then we'll start the book of James. Before I do that, though, I want to remind you, last week we wrapped up a, a sermon series called Simply Seven. It's a couple of weeks and share with you seven words that we believe summarize and say it all especially as it pertains to the Christian faith. So we handed out hundreds and hundreds of these little packets. They have each of the seven words described in here. But our challenge to you was to share these. Give them away. Uh, talk to somebody about this stuff. And hopefully that you did. Uh, hopefully you did that. If you weren't able to grab one of these up, there's a few extras at the Next Steps table. We can also print off a bunch more. But this is a great way for you to change somebody's life for all of eternity by sharing with them seven words uh, that matter and that will impact them uh, deeply. So that's our hope there, Simply 7 Series. Let me pray for us. We jump into James. God, uh, we do want our uh, worship and our lives to be a sweet fragrance to you. We don't want it to smell like, like trash, God, or, or bad breath or whatever it is in this world that we're just like, oh, it's so gross. We don't want our lives to smell like that. We want, we want who we are and what we say and what we believe to be really sweet smelling. And so we need your help in that, God. Show us what is true. Show us what is real. Show us what's right. Change our minds and our hearts now through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me read to you James chapter one. Hang with me here. A great text. Be on the screen for you if you don't have your Bible. It says this. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. In other words, to Christians who might find themselves anywhere and everywhere. Greetings, hello. Uh, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is um, double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances, well, they ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Uh, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business." In most situations, whether it's uh, sports or business or even academics, uh, it's important to know what the point is. Right? It's important to know what the goal is. Right? What are you trying to accomplish or achieve in any given situation? Right? It's always in your best interest to understand the overall objective. Take, for example, chess. Uh, chess, in this particular game, uh, the goal is to take your pieces, to move them in a specific and strategic way, to more or less like trap or what they call checkmate the other team's king, 
And I'm not a chess guy, so I think you're supposed to do all that while saying things like dilly dilly and rue the day. Is that right? Anyway, yeah, the goal of that game. Yeah, there's a goal. There's a point, right? How about the school science fair? Right, the goal of the school science fair is to see which amateur and adolescent scientists can make the biggest mess and cause the busy, biggest, biggest explosion using household chemicals. Right, that's the goal. That's the point. And there's a great Sesame Street skit out there if you haven't seen one with Beaker. Awesome. And finally, there's college. Right? Like, what's the goal of college? Well, the goal of college is to spend a lot of time, a lot of energy, and a lot of money uh, making friends, making bad decisions, and then making a choice about your major, which you will change three or four times in five to six years, right? That's the goal. That's the point. Well, maybe not, but you understand that, that when it comes to doing just about anything in life, you got to know what the goal is. You got to know what the point of it is. And if you don't understand what the point is, you might be working really hard. You might be running really fast. You might be feeling really successful, but you're not. And you're failing miserably, right? Or, or vice versa. You might be feeling like nothing is going well or nothing is coming about like you had hoped and that you were so far from your goal, but it depends on what your goal was. You might be closer to it than you think. See, knowing the goal will dictate and determine everything you do. So here's a question for you. And how would you answer this particular question? What if I were to ask you, what's the goal of life? What's the ultimate goal of your life? What's, what's the point? And I imagine I would get as many different responses to that question as, as people I asked the question to. Right? Some might say life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Others might say things like making money, providing a good life for my family. Some might say the point is making or working hard or, or playing hard or, or having the most fun or having the most toys. Some might say it's all about devoting yourself to a cause that's, that's bigger than you or bigger than yourself. Like Sigmund Freud, you might say the goal of life is death. Well, thanks, Freud. Appreciate that. There are so many different opinions out there, aren't there? So many differing opinions as to what the goal is, what the point is, what the purpose is. And that's why I think a lot of people are stressed out or on the verge of burnout. Because they're just, they're not sure where they're going. They're not sure where they're supposed to go. They're not sure what the point is. And so they don't ever know if they're making any progress or getting any closer. Because they're just, they're not sure what the objective is. But don't you think it would be wise to ask God what the goal is? I mean, don't you think it would be in our best interest to ask the one who breathed life into us why he did it in the first place and now what he wants to do with it? What he wants us to do with it now? That's what we're going to do is ask God, what's the, what's the goal, God? And I think he's already given us an answer a couple times. Romans 8, 29 says this, For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them, listen to this, to become like his son, so that his son might be the firstborn, the first one among many brothers and sisters. He says it again, just so we don't miss it in Galatians 4.19. My dear children, Paul says, I feel the pains of, of birth appropriate on a child dedication day. I feel the pains of birth on me. And I'll continue in labor for you. I'll continue to work hard for you in Christ until Christ, this anointed one, listen to this, is formed completely in you. So you want to know what the ultimate goal of your life is? Here it is. Take a note. It's to be just like Jesus. The point of it all, the goal, the objective of your life is to be just like Jesus. Say that out loud with me. Just like Jesus. That's the point. Say it one more time. Just like Jesus. See, that's God's definition of a win. 
That's what he's working towards. That, that's, his, that's his great hope for you. And we're not talking about just like Jesus in the sense of like rocking a beard and some sideburns and a prayer shawl. Like some of you could pull that off right now, right? We're talking about being just like Jesus in terms of his character and his nature. We're talking about having the mind of Christ, the heart of Christ, the spirit of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul says that God is going to shape our lives, all of our lives, along the same lines as that of Jesus. Jesus is the model. He's the mold. And all of us should look like and conform to that image. Because in his life is life. Like, that's how you're supposed to do it. His wasn't just the perfect life or a good life or a holy life or whatever. That is the way you're supposed to live life. From the way that he loved others to the way he served the poor to the way he interacted and devoted himself to God to the way he fought against evil. Everything that he did, probably the way he ate and slept, all of that, that's the way you're supposed to do it. It's, it's the example for us. That is life to the full. To look like, to love like, to live like Jesus. Just like Jesus. That's the goal. Now, I want that to sink in because if that's the goal, then several other things that we typically assume are the goal are not. Think about that with me. If the point of the life is to be just like Jesus, then the goal is not happiness. Now, I think when you become like Jesus, there'll be a lot of happiness in the equation, but the ultimate goal is not happiness. The ultimate goal is your holiness. Very different goal. If the point of this life is to be just like Jesus, then the ultimate goal, the point, it's not your success. I mean, by worldly standards, Jesus was not very successful. He had a small following of people, not a lot of money, and he died at an early age. So the ultimate goal is not success. It is surrender and submission to the Lord. If the ultimate point of this life is to be just like Jesus, then the goal is not your comfort. I mean, Jesus sacrificed many of the comforts of this life. He asked his followers to make those sacrifices as well. Why? Because the goal is not your comfort. The goal is the development of your character. See how knowing the goal changes everything? It's funny, I, I love darts. And I've got a dartboard in my office. It's one of my favorite games to play. And everybody just assumes the goal of darts is just to hit the bullseye. Well, that's the goal of one game in darts. But there's a lot of other goals. In fact, there are some games in darts where hitting the bullseye is a detriment to you. You don't want to because it scores points in a way you don't want points. So you got to understand what game you're playing. you got to understand what goal you have in mind. You could be firing, hitting that bullseye out loud, look at me. And it's like, yeah, you stink. We're not playing that game. Is that what's happening to many of us in life? We think we have a goal in mind. We think we're achieving it. Happiness, comfort, success, wealth, whatever it might be. And the Lord's like, that's not the game. That's not, that's not what we're doing here. The goal is to be just like Jesus. And that's where the book of James comes. And that's why we chose to study it. The book of James is one of the smaller books in the New Testament. And it's appropriately titled uh, because guess who wrote it? A guy named James. But James isn't just some guy. James is actually Jesus' brother, his half-brother. They had the same mom. And so if that's true, then a couple other things are true as well. If James is his brother, the brother of Jesus, that means he saw him day in and day out. James had a front row seat to the man, the teacher, the miracle worker, the rabbi, the savior that Jesus developed and ultimately became. James, if he's his brother, that means he saw him out in public when he was ministering to the masses, when he was preaching to the crowds, when he was doing all these crazy things. He saw him there, but he also saw him late at night behind closed doors when Jesus was a little hangry, right? When he was kind of like, oh, you're getting on my nerves right now, Jesus. 
That's the blessing and the, and the benefit of being family. You see the good and the bad of these people. You know them inside and out. So when it comes to our goal, the goal of being like Jesus, just like Jesus, guess who's an expert on the subject? James. Because he saw him. He saw him in any and every situation. And so now he tells us, church, if the goal is to be just like Jesus, i got to tell you what that looks like because I know I'm an expert on the subject. I'm his brother. Here's the thing. See, like many Christians today, James' original audience, it looks like they lost sight of their goal. They lived in an unbelieving world. They lived in a world that was hostile to faith. And, and so it seems like they were very tempted to forget what the goal was. They were tempted to keep their faith up here and never manifest itself out here. They were tempted to like not go to any extremes, like don't offend anybody, don't be some religious freak or some religious fanatic, right? Believe in Jesus, but let's just keep it at that. Like it's safer, it's easier, it's more comfortable, it's more community. That, that's the goal. Believe in him and then just live your life like everybody else, okay? That, that's what was happening to the first century audience that James was writing to. And so James was like, no, 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 you've lost sight of the goal. The goal is not to believe in Jesus up here and then live like everybody else. The goal is for your belief in Jesus up here to change everything else about you right here. The goal is to be just like him in every way. They had lost sight of the importance of purity. They had lost sight of the importance of uh, devotion to one another. They had lost sight of the importance of uh, their responsibility to the poor and the oppressed. They'd lost sight of their responsibility to prayer. Why? Because all those things require you from go to here to here. All those things demand that you take your faith from here and you do something with it out here. And they'd lost sight of that. And the only way to make sense of life, the only way to make it through life, the only way to make the most of this life is to keep our eyes on the goal of becoming just like Jesus. And James is going to help us to do that. All right, now we don't know much about James in particular, but we do know one thing. He does not enjoy small talk. Because right after he says hello, he jumps into one of the most difficult, even the seemingly contradictory commands in all of Scripture. What does he say? Verse 2, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Nice to hear from you too, James. My name's Thomas, right? Consider it pure joy, my brothers, just whenever you face trials of many kinds. And I don't know about you, but I want to respond to that with, what? Are you, are you out of your mind? Consider it pure joy. Are you saying consider it pure joy when my health is failing or my marriage is on the rocks? Are you saying consider it pure joy when, when work isn't going very well or when the kids are acting out? Are you saying consider it pure joy when I'm struggling relationally, can barely make it financially? Are you saying consider it pure joy when I can't seem to get past this or get over that or forgive myself for whatever it was? Really? Consider it pure joy, James? You are crazy. I don't rejoice in those moments. I complain and I moan and I fight. I consider them a major problem, an inconvenience, a burden. There he is, James, right off the bat saying, consider it Pure joy. Pure joy when you go through really hard things. Why would he say that? Verse 3. Because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. What's he saying there? Because the goal, the goal is to be just like Jesus. The goal is to be mature and complete. God doesn't want you to lack for anything. He doesn't want you to be incomplete in any way. And so the trials of this life, the difficult things that we all go through, maybe they're able to help us achieve the goal. Maybe all those things move us closer to the goal, the purpose, the ultimate objective. 
Right? God wants us to be just like Jesus, and it seems if he will stop at nothing and use anything to help us get to the goal, even the really hard things, maybe especially the really hard things. Because isn't it just like that at school, that one class that was so hard, the teacher demanded so much, you had to read so many extra, like, you know, volunteer books, whatever they called them. That was so hard, and you worked so much, you're like, I hate this class. Guess what class you remember? That class. Right, when all the other lessons you learned in school just kind of go by the wayside, it was that one teacher, that one class that pushed you so hard, that pushed you to the very brinking point. You're at like 1 a.m. still writing your paper. Like, ah! You remember that stuff, don't you? The lessons you learned through that trial are the ones that sunk deep into your heart. Maybe that's what the Lord is doing with these trials in our life. Maybe he's saying, if, if I push you hard, because I want you to be mature and complete. I want you to be just like Jesus. I want that so bad for you. And I'm not going to short you in any area of your life. I want you to be just like Jesus, so you've got to go through this, because I see the goal at the very end of it. Now, does this mean that God causes or brings about the calamity and the difficulties in our life? I can't say with absolute certainty, but I can say this. Everything that we go through, everything from the good to the bad to the downright horrific, everything we go through is an opportunity for our heart, our mind, our body, and our spirit to be transformed into the image of Christ. Everything in this life is an opportunity for you to get closer to the goal. We might not see it, we might not like it, we might not know it, we might not have chosen this for ourselves, but it appears we can re literally rejoice in the worst because we know somehow it's bringing about our best. Because it's bringing about Jesus in us. All this reminds me of what happened the first day of baseball practice, uh, my sophomore year. There's the Manzano Monarchs. Monarchs, what up? Uh, that is our logo right there, the Monarch. It is a lion, not a butterfly, right? So back off. We got made fun of that. Anyway, uh, here we go. Sophomore year, first day of baseball practice. Aaron and I, my best friend at the time, we, we had played pretty well. We'd performed pretty well during our freshman year. We'd even been bumped up to the JV team towards the end of our freshman year. So you can imagine how excited we were on the first day of our sophomore season when the coach said, listen, anybody that played in JV or varsity last year, you're going to scrimmage one day, one game. I'm taking the best players from this game, and they're going to play in varsity for the rest of the year. We're like, yes, sir, this is our chance. This is our moment. This is our great opportunity. We're going to prove how good we are. We're going to make the team. Well, before the game even begins, the varsity coach comes up to me and Aaron, and he says, you two, you won't be playing in the game today because I need you to throw batting practice to the new freshman. Grab the gear and head down to the lower practice field. Now, that's what he said. This is what it sounded like. You two, you stink. You are the worst ball players in this entire school. But instead of cutting you, I don't want to waste airspace. I'm going to have you babysit the freshmen so that I don't have to. Here's the bat bag. Have fun. That's exactly how we heard it. So we grab the stuff and we head down to the practice field. I mean, we were like kicking the dirt and sitting everywhere. Right? We were all mad. During batting practice, we're throwing balls at the freshmen, trying to beat them. I repented, I swear, of that moment. <laughs> well, after practice is over, Aaron and I are like, something has to be done. This is an injustice of epic proportion. So in my adolescent ignorance and arrogance, I go over to the coach. Coach, what's the deal? I mean, give us a shot to prove ourselves. Give us a shot to play. We're great players. We did so well last year. 
and, and, and we're ready for the big leagues. We're ready for varsity. Why didn't you put us in the game today? It's not, it's not fair. Don't waste our time and our talents with the freshmen. And the coach, I kid you not, we're sitting in the dugout. He starts to take his cleats off, doesn't even look at me, and he says this. Tom, because those who knew me back in the day, I, I was Tom, not for you. It's Thomas, understand? <laughs> you don't get that choice. Tom, Aaron, you are the only two players whose spots were guaranteed on varsity. I didn't need to see you play today because I knew you were great players. I needed to see if you were great leaders because pouring in to the younger players is of high priority to me, Tom. And I'm assuming it's of high priority to you as well. If I had a tail, it would wrap between my legs. See, the goal was to develop our character. It wasn't to just play in some contest. The goal was to work on our humility, not prove that we had it. Right? Even though I was kicking, I was screaming, I was assuming I had been smitten by the coach. He was actually doing something in that moment. He was shaping me and molding me and helping me in a way that playing in the game would have never accomplished. I actually had to be outside of the game. I had to do something beyond the game to, to learn the things that I needed to learn. The only one in charge, the coach, he knew what the goal was that day. I had lost sight of the goal. I had assumed it was one thing, and it was so much bigger. It was so much better. It was me becoming a man. That was the goal of that day, not to play in nine innings of baseball. And I wonder... If what happened to me that day on the field, although insignificant, I get that. I'm not comparing this to the calamities and the hardships that you all have gone through. Don't, don't hear me say that. But I wonder if what happened to me on that field that day is symbolic of what's happened to many of us in our faith. I wonder. I wonder if we assume that the bad things or the hard things or the difficult things or the confusing things or the trying things, they're not from God. I wonder if we assume that, that there is no God because they're in our life. I wonder if we assume that God's mad at us because they're happening or that he's forgotten about us or that he's punishing us. But maybe, maybe, friends, the opposite is true. Right? Maybe the things that don't feel like they are from God are the very things used by God to make you more like God. Maybe the coach knows what he's doing. And maybe the goal isn't what you thought the goal was. Maybe the coach was to develop you into somebody you wouldn't have become had you played in the game. Maybe God, maybe the coach has a bigger, a better plan and purpose for your life. And will you trust him, even in the hard things? Is it possible, my friends, that pain and persecution, heartache and hard times, is it possible that what James calls trials are bringing about some significant change deep within us? Is it possible they are achieving something that nothing else could? Is it possible the worst this world can throw at us is actually bringing about our best? Is it possible that our trials are transformational? It's not just possible, James says. That's exactly what's happening. I recently heard someone call this dynamic the squeeze effect. I had a bottle of toothpaste with me, but I dropped it. So if you see one in the foyer, it's mine, all right, just so you know. Um, the squeeze effect. How many of you, when you get to the end of a toothpaste bottle, do one of those like roll up, squeeze, bend, knee it, get on the table, right? Just to squeeze out the last little Anybody? Just got to get the last little bit out of that thing, right? I mean, if it were a living creature, you would be arrested for doing that. That's assault and battery in 50 states, right? I mean, you are just destroying that thing. 
What's the point? I just got to squeeze out every little bit. I wonder, church, I wonder. Are, are trials in our life, are they like that? Is God trying to squeeze out of us something? He's trying to squeeze out of us the selfishness that is buried so deep within us. He's trying to squeeze out of us the short-sightedness that is buried so deep within us. He's trying to squeeze out of us the sin, the curse, the contamination. He's trying to squeeze out of us our life so we can fill it with his life. Is he trying to bring us to the end of ourselves so he can fill us with himself? I think James would say, yeah, that's exactly what's happening. But here's the thing. That's easy to say. I get that, right? But tragedy and trials, they tend to propel us into doubt. They tend to cause all kinds of disbelief. Instead of feeling great about what's happening to us, we grumble. Where is God in all this? A loving God wouldn't allow this to happen to me. God, God's forgotten about me. That's why James says what he does next, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Why are you going through this trial? Why is the Lord squeezing you? I don't know, but he does. And so why don't you ask him? Ask him what the point is. Ask him what's going on. Ask him what he's up to. Ask him to show you what he's doing. Ask him to help you understand how it's supposed to shape and change you into the nature of Jesus. Ask him what's wrong that you can help make right. Ask him what's going on in this situation. If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you is confused, if any of you doesn't have a clue what's going on right now, ask the Lord. Ask, Lord God, what is the point of all of this? And believe. Believe that he has an answer for you. Right? James will say, believe deep in your heart that there's a purpose to your pain. Believe that there's a plan to your problems. Believe that suffering is a part of God's strategy. Believe God has something to say to you and something to show you. Believe that if you go to the coach, he has a very good reason for why you didn't play in the game that day. Go ask him. He's a good God. He'll tell you. And after saying all of this, James goes into this somewhat awkward and tangential thought about rich people and, and, and poor people, but it makes a lot of sense in this light. It seems as if the rich are trying to shield themselves from adversity. The rich are trying to protect themselves from bad things happening to them. And James is like, but that's the only way you can reach the goal. He says this, verse 9, believers in humble circumstances, those who are poor, those who are marginalized, those who are oppressed, you ought to take pride in your quote-unquote high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wildflower. The sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. James is saying that our wealth and our stuff and our, our, our you know, jam-packed garages and extra storage spaces and all of our toys, all that stuff can blind us to the goal. It can keep us from the goal. See, the rich assume, well, I've arrived. The rich assume, well, I, I am mature. The rich assume, I am complete. And he's like, no, 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 the goal is Jesus. Looking like Jesus, the goal isn't stuff or success over here in the world, but you are trading this goal for the ultimate goal. And so he says, there will come a day where your goal will be found out to not be the ultimate goal. There will come a day where it withers. You were never tested. You were never tried. Your faith doesn't last. Pastor Nathan was, uh, uh, owned a lawn care business before he became a pastor. So every once in a while, I ask him about lawn stuff. Like, hey, give me the secret. How, how do I make my grass like lush and thick and green? Right, and it's free, right, Nathan? Anyway, so I ask him this. And I'm like, okay, so I'm just going to water so much. I'm just going to keep pouring water on this because I'm sure it's just dry, right? 
He's like, no, no, by watering it so much, you're actually destroying it. Because you have to get the roots of the grass to go so deep. And the only way to get the roots to go deeper and, and for, the, and for the, the things to be stronger and more lush or whatever, you have to go through a little bit of a drought. It has to fight its way through the soil to find water. It's the only way you get a, a lush green garden. And I was like, Pastor Nathan, you were ministering to that grass, weren't you? I mean, you were like standing there and saying, consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you lack water of any kind, because you know the lack of water produces within you deep roots. Like, I could see you do that, man. He's like, yeah, I, I did that a little bit. I did that a little bit. But isn't there a lot of truth to that? We assume just more, 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 and I'll be happy. That's what, the, that's what the wealthy say. The Lord's saying, no, 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 remove some of that stuff from your equation and see if your roots don't, don't go deeper. See if you're not forced to go deeper. And I love, I love this. I love that he says, stay faithful. That's his advice to us. Hey, stay faithful. A real faith in real life is one that just stays faithful. Don't let the craziness and the chaos and the curveballs of life cause you to become bitter or angry or hostile or frustrated or, or, to, or to come back a little bit, right? To shirk back. Don't allow it to happen. Believe that God is committed to making you just like Jesus. And that everything that happens to you, from the good to the bad, that which sent you into counseling, right? All of that, all of that can and will be used to get you closer to the goal. That's what James says, James 1.12. I love the verse, blessed is the one. Lucky are you. I'm so proud of you when you persevere under trial. Because having stood the test, each of those people will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. That's the great reward at the end for staying faithful. But it doesn't stop there, and so we're not going to stop there. Just a few more minutes. Let's look at James 13 through 18. After telling us to stay faithful, James also tells us to stand firm. James 13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. So in addition to having to go through or trials in this life, James also says we have to endure temptations. Both of these things are in our way as it pertains to getting to our goal or are things that God will use along the way to help us get to our goal. So trials are things that happen to us, but temptations are things it looks like that, that well up from within us. And the language and imagery that James uses here, it's fascinating. This word tempted or temptation, its root is in a Greek word for lure, like a fishing lure. You've heard me talk about this before, but, but this is fascinating stuff, right? Evil and sin are like this lure that Satan throws out right where he thinks you're going to be. And he's just waiting for you to be enticed by it. He's just waiting for you to grab a hold of it. And many of us know the effectiveness of these lures, don't we? This is the lure of that scantily dressed woman at work or on the internet or just one click away. This is the lure of an open bottle on a really hard day. This is the lure of a no money down, uh, 10 easy payments. Or this is the lure of it's just one little lie, the lure of you deserve that praise and that recognition. They don't. It's the lure of evil. And James says it's a problem for all of us. The problem with it is that we all experience the problem of it. James says that these evil desires, they exist deep within us. Some blame the devil, some blame our parents, some blame our circumstances, some blame bad luck. In fact, a recent survey showed that 78% of people in counseling blame someone or something else for what's happened to them in life. 
And there's probably some truth to that. But Paul, or James says, just look within. Because the problem is starting deep within that. Deep within you. And all these lures have one thing in common. They're trying to pull us away from God. They're trying to make us think that where we are with God and in relationship with God, the little lure comes in, bloop. It's just trying to pull us ever so slightly away from the Lord. Come over here. Come over here. A little bit more distance between you and God. It's trying to make you think that the happiness or the satisfaction of the abundant life that you want, it's found in something, someone, or somewhere else other than God. That's why James follows with this. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. The good that you want, the pleasure that you're seeking, the happiness that you so badly desire, everything, all the good in this life, guess where it comes from? It comes from God. It doesn't come from the lure of evil. It doesn't come from all the things that the world tells us it comes from. It doesn't come through that one night stand. It doesn't come through that lie. It doesn't come through that bottle. It doesn't come through that pill. It doesn't come through that drug. That's what the lure is trying to get you to say or get you to believe. Hey, just over here is some really good stuff. James says, don't be deceived. There's nothing good over there at the end of that line. All the good you want is right here with the Lord. You have to stand firm because the good is right here. Do not allow Satan and evil and all these temptations and desires to draw you away from the good. Everything good comes from God. It always has and it always will. He is firm. He is solid. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. He is the source of good, has always been, and always will be. And if we're going to have a real faith that applies to real life, we've got to come to terms with the fact that there's these temptations inside of all of us. Temptations to eat this, look at that, smoke this, sleep over here, lie about that person, gossip over here, right? Whatever it might be, there's these temptations deep within us. They're trying to pull us away, lure us away from the good and from the goal. So you've got to stand firm. You gotta stay faithful during the trials. Just know the coach is up to something. But you also gotta stand firm during the temptations because evil is up to something. And I don't know about you, but it's really hard to admit that I still struggle with these temptations. I mean, I've been a Christian now for 16, 17 years, and I'm a pastor. And it's just so embarrassing to stand up here and be like, guys, there are still these desires that are deep within me that are still pulling me and urging me to do things that I really, I don't want to do. Like, I don't want to look at that website and I don't want to think about that person and I don't want to go buy that other thing, but there's these desires deep within me. And I don't want you to lose heart or to lose hope. The stronger the believer you become, the stronger the lures will become. They don't go away. He's so upset that you are developing into this Christ-like person. Your enemy is so upset by that. He's going to start luring you with all kinds of things. He's going to be like this. <laughs> Crap, he's getting closer to Jesus, right? You're going to lure him away, lure him away. He's just going to keep coming at you. And I wish it could be to the point where it's like, I don't even have any lures anymore, man. Life is good. I don't know why I have to say it like a hippie, but. But you don't ever get to the point where, where the lures aren't coming after you. That's what it means to have a real faith in real life. It means that you are staying faithful during the really hard stuff. And you are standing firm during the really tempting stuff. That's how you will become more and more like Jesus. So the goal, the goal 
in chess, it's one thing. In football, it's another. At the science fair, it's, it's another thing. At work tomorrow, you might have a different goal or whatever. But the goal of your life, ultimate goal for you, is to become just like Jesus. And James tells us the way that you work towards that goal, the way you understand how that goal is, is br- being brought about in your life, is you stay faithful during trials. And you stand firm during temptations. And every time you commit to doing those things, you're reaching the goal. You're getting closer to the goal. You're becoming so much more like Jesus. Let me pray that over you. We'll get you out of here. God, we thank you for your word because we believe that it is a guiding light into our lives. And so we pray right now, Lord, for many of us in this room who are in the middle of a really severe trial. And it's really hard, God. If we're honest, we're struggling. We don't know what you're doing or why. We're pretty upset that you've done this or at least allowed it. God, we are frustrated and, and some, some of us are overwhelmed. Some of us are about to give up. The trial just seems too much from loss to death to diseases, God, divorce, illnesses, financial hardships, God. There's so many things in this life. It just They don't seem like they're from you, Father. And maybe they're not, but we know with absolute certainty that they are being used by you, God. Those things are teaching us and training us and transforming us if we allow them to more and more into the image of Jesus. And so we pray for those going through a trial right now or all of us who will one day go through a trial that we will be able to stay faithful. We'll be able to persevere through it. That we'll just keep throwing batting practice, God, all day long if that's what you need us to do because we know that you're developing us. You're shaping us. You're molding us in the image of Jesus. And you know what that looks like. We do not. And so we submit to you right now and say, make us like Jesus. Bring into our life what needs to come so we can reach our goal. Lord, we also pray for those who are experiencing intense temptations right now. And we could all raise our hand in this moment, God, because this evil, James says, it's living inside all of us, God. It's right there. We're just ready to lure its its ugly head or raise its ugly head up at any moment. And so we pray for us, God. We pray that that this church would be strong when when it comes to fighting temptations that we would see them for what they are, that they are fake and false promises, God, that they are just lures of the enemy trying to drag us and draw us away from the true source of good, and that is you. So help us this week, whether it's an addiction or or our apathy or our anger, God, whatever might be our thing or our vice, our temptation, would we stand strong, stand firm against it, God, and be close to you, not allow anything to lure us away. Wow, real faith. It's raw, God, and it's messy, and it's hard. But Lord, I think if we, just would, we, if we would live out this real faith, Father, we would experience real life. That's our hope and our prayer now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.